You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What's up, everyone? This is Nate Thurston with Good Morning Liberty. Of course, our co-host Charles Chuck Thompson is not here today, but that's okay because I'm joined by Ethan Brown, who is the creator and host of The Sweaty Penguin, which is a podcast focused on making the climate change conversation less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. He is also a Young Voices contributor. Ethan how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. So first off, I think it's important that we say, uh, I think we might have some disagreements on things, which makes me more excited for the conversation because we can demonstrate how people who maybe aren't uh, at the exact same place on all of the issues could just have a conversation about things. So that that's, yeah, a, that's, that's an important that's thing I <laughs> that I think uh, maybe people could, could, uh, could replicate. Uh, throughout throughout society right now, but I wanted to talk about your uh, your piece on overpopulation. If you don't mind starting there, we actually talked about this on yesterday's episode uh, as they were talking about the nuclear fusion breakthrough, and we were talking a little bit of about the uh, Malthusian mentality just on yesterday's episode. So, why don't you catch everyone up on on that piece? Yeah, so I had this piece published yesterday in C three News Mag, and basically what I was saying the I believe it was November 15th where the world cracked 8 billion people for the total population. And there's a lot of people in the climate world. I see comedians do it all the time where they talk about like weeding out the herd or we have too many people and that's the cause of all our problems. And I just don't think that's true. I've found in doing my years of climate work that humans really have an opportunity to lower emissions, to lower our environmental footprint, just by managing ourselves better, being smarter, taking better actions, and we can even grow our economies and innovate while doing that. And I think that this idea that there's too many people is just such a dark idea that I don't think has much evidence to back it. So we can get into the weeds a little more, but that's kind of where I started from. Well, yeah, and this idea that there's too many people on Earth, uh, we're not the first generation that's heard people talk about that, right? I mean, this goes back, uh, even back to, what is it, 1800, I think? 1798? Yeah, it was back to Thomas Malthus's essay on overpopulation. And I think the idea even goes back further, but his essay really popularized the idea of population theory. He was essentially arguing that 
population grows exponentially, but food production grows linearly, and as such, there would be some day where population growth would be outpacing food production, and everyone would starve to death. And again, that's just not true. We've seen with food production how we're creating amazing innovations in agriculture through new fertilizers, pesticides, um, just we can go on and on, but also just on principle, like one apple seed can grow an entire tree of apples. Like food production is not linear. So I think there's this disconnect there where we can see we can feed a growing planet and most of our famine issues, our hunger issues are less so related to production of food as they are distribution of food. So I felt that Thomas Malthus was kind of starting off on the wrong foot there. Yeah. One thing that just isn't taken into account are technological innovations. And even right now, we can think that we're taking technological innovations into account when we talk about it. But actually, we don't know the future and and things that are going to change clearly, or we would invent it. I would recommend that that's what we do right now if we do know, uh, but we don't. And so we can't even talk about what the future is going to look like. And I think a lot of people get fixed in that idea that it's going to be what it looks like right now and the numbers are just going to grow. We even have, you know, what about the genetically modified foods? I didn't mention those. Those get kind of a bad rap. They could have saved billions of people's lives, though. What are, your, what are your thoughts on stuff like that? Absolutely. That's a great example as well. Just slipped my mind there. But certainly, especially when we talk about climate change and we see the increasing prevalence of drought around the world, there are a lot of GMOs that are being developed to withstand drought. And I think that's a really exciting thing for a lot of these countries that are struggling with hunger, are facing these droughts, they can start to incorporate these seeds into their agriculture. I'm not as much an expert on some of the maybe arguments against GMOs and how to (laughs) address them, but certainly the premise is very exciting to me. Yeah, they're just... uh you know, not, I guess, not natural, probably going to cause, you know, cancer or something. I don't know what people might say about that. I'm not sure what the research is on all of that, but uh, that's a lot of what I've heard. Now, okay, some people think that there's too many people. What's the the harm in that? Yeah, I think that this misconception can lead to a lot of damage as well. I mentioned in the article, the one-child policy in China that was instituted in 1980, that I think is a prime example of this. The policy led to forced abortions. It led to, uh, I mean, today there's a way imbalanced gender ratio where there's, I believe it was 30 million more men than women or something. I'll, uh, the numbers in my article, I think that was the number though. And that can also lead to increased crime, increased violence. So there's a big problem that results from this. And China has since repealed this policy, and they moved it up to two kids and then three kids. But for a generation, people were forced to have one child, and that created a lot of psychological damage that even today you go to China and most families just have one child. So I think that it gets really dark if we start to take this seriously, and I worry that Um, even though it's maybe fun for some comedy bits, uh, some of my favorite comedians have bits about this, but it does start to become a serious issue. Do you think it also could create a sort of nihilism, a a negativity towards uh, humanity itself? That could have a lot of negative repercussions, I would say. It can, and it baffles me because uh, you're a human, I'm a human. Like, why are we acting as if we're against ourselves, even if 
this were true, we should be trying to find a way out of it, not embracing it. But yeah, I think that there's a lot to be optimistic about in climate change and environmental issues. We are finding solutions left and right to these problems. I talk a lot about sustainable development in this article, which is the idea that humans can grow our economy and innovate while being sustainable while not depleting our resources, but rather keeping pace with the amount that our resources can regenerate. Part of that is, like we've been talking about, technological innovations to help our resources regenerate faster. So yeah, there's a lot to be optimistic about. And I think that by blaming population, like you say, we also kind of force ourselves into this nihilistic attitude as opposed to embracing some of the exciting stuff that's going on. Some of those innovations, you could even say, I don't want to, I don't want to frame it as a positive from the pandemic, but work from home, that happened a lot. And that uh, you talk about uh, the urban centers, and of course, they're becoming more and more concentrated. Well, work from home that I think that that could be helping to spread out that problem. And then there's other things um, like uh, you could mention Starlink or Internet widely available internet services for people uh, that can make work from home available almost anywhere in the world. And you could be solving that problem. Yeah, access to broadband internet is often considered a climate solution by experts. And I think that sometimes surprises people. But when you look at it, if people in especially these rural areas have access to broadband internet, they can work from home. You don't necessarily need everyone moving into the city and being all close together. You don't need people commuting as much. I know for myself, I've worked from home basically my whole career because I graduated college during the pandemic. And I think there's certainly pros and cons to it. But definitely one pro is it saves a lot of uh time and emissions and energy uh, having to transport yourself. And certainly for me, I just moved to LA. I was living in Orange County before that. There is a lot of traffic here. And I definitely am thankful that I'm not stuck in a half hour of traffic every day just to go to work. Well, even there could be some lost productivity, you could say, from people working from home. But also there's a lot of lost, lost productivity and people hating their lives and spending a bunch of time in traffic all day and having the plan for that that uh, you know, it's kind of hard to quantify all of that, but I'm sure someone's quantifying all of that right now. Um, the other thing I want, I really wanted to talk about where we could have some, maybe some, some disagreements on things is when it comes to climate change. Now, what I do like about your viewpoint on this, you seem to be less of, uh, we're all going to die in a few years. We have to do everything that we possibly can right now type of climate change <laughs> person. And to me, that's dangerous because it, it, it ends up making you, I don't know, frozen with fear and there's no way you can ever solve the problem. And what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So obviously, um, as you can tell from my work, climate change is a very, very important issue to me. It was really what I did a dual degree in environmental analysis and policy and film and television in college. I've been hosting a climate podcast for two and a half years, and I find it very concerning seeing a lot of the uh, natural disasters and heat waves and droughts going on that are scientifically linked to climate change. But at the same time, I think there is a large segment of the climate world, like you say, that maybe takes it a little too far sometimes. Um, I think that Particularly when we start getting into climate solutions, that's where there's a lot of room for constructive debate because there are liberal climate policies, there are conservative climate policies, there are also 
things that have nothing to do with politics that we can do to help the climate. And ultimately, a lot of these solutions also have economic benefits, also have health benefits, also help our national security, justice, etc. And that's where I really like to emphasize how can we help the climate, but also help all these other issues we care about. And I find doing my work that there is a honestly surprising amount of solutions that can help across the board. It's not always this balancing act that it's made out to be. And that's what gets me excited to work on climate. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Don't you wish life came with a user manual? I've needed that a lot. Trust me, stuff goes wrong, even for myself and the other co-hosts here at Good Morning Liberty. Unfortunately, we don't get that user manual. You just kind of figure it out on your own. Hope you're making the best decisions. Maybe it's a career change or relationship. You could be a new parent. Pretty easy to get stuck. We don't have that user manual, but we do have better help. Therapists can help you figure out that whole stuck feeling help you build better coping skills, and work through those tough decisions. I have done therapy before. Some of the best things I've done in my life, some of the best changes that I've made were because I was talking to a therapist. It was not easy when I did it. It was actually pretty tough. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I am really glad that I did it. It's not about a therapist making decisions for you. It's about becoming a healthy version of yourself so you can make the best decisions on your own. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online, plus it's affordable. Just fill out the brief question there, the match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. Couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash GML. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash GML. Yeah, there's... Uh, I- we can spend some time on this. There are some things that bother me. Like there's a lot of adaptation that we can do. And I, I think the concern from people uh, more on the uh, climate change or activist side is that that's kind of like giving up. Like we're not going to try and solve the problem. We're just going to adapt to this and accept that, uh, that this is the future. And so then we don't work quite as much on those goals. So there's, there's things we can do to reduce emissions a lot, but it's not all the way. So we can't work on those, you know? Um, and then we just end up with this massive divisive society. And then uh, here's the other problem. I agree that it's uh, that climate change is happening and that it's a bad idea to take carbon from the ground and put it up in the air. I agree. I have a hard time agreeing with any of the policies that I see out there, though, um, because I think people are taking it too extreme. Like, what do you do for people like me who agree? But I just can't I can't get on board with uh, all the solutions I'm seeing. We need your voice, right? Because (laughs) I think that's the problem. We have one segment that is very, I mean, I think everyone shares concern about climate change for the most part, but there's one segment that does have a certain outlook on how to solve problems and another segment that might prefer to solve problems differently. And I think that sometimes, um, to be candid, the left can sometimes dominate the climate policy discussion. And uh, certainly this year we saw that happen with the Inflation Reduction Act, where um, I think there's pros and cons in it, but like it or not, it was kind of rammed through by the Democratic Party. I did a op-ed on that as well. And I would like to see more bipartisan climate stuff where both sides can kind of get together and agree on something that works for them. And it's certainly possible. We've 
just in the last four or five years or so, we've had the Great American Outdoors Act, Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, the Infrastructure Bill, the BEST Act, the Use It Act. These weren't climate bills per se, but they had climate implications and they were agreed upon with uh, bipartisan support. And even going back to the 70s, we look at the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, National Environmental Policy Act. These were policies agreed upon with Democratic Congresses and Republican presidents Nixon and Ford. And they had bipartisan support as well. And today, 50 years later, they're the foundational environmental laws protecting the environment in our country. So I know it's possible. And I think the more everyone can get their voice into this conversation, the more that we can find that common ground and get policy that everyone can be excited about. You had a recent uh, piece in Counterpunch, I think is what it was in the episode on it too, about the loss and damage fund, uh, which is not climate reparations. Uh, which uh, <laughs> which you uh, you mentioned uh, a couple times. So uh, let me just, I want to talk to you about what my problem is on this whole idea. And you've also talked to a lot of experts. And I wanted to also tell you, if you've got any recommendations or anyone that you think could come on and talk to me or any of the listeners and uh, just get some more information on these topics, let me know. I'm more than uh, more than open my issue with the loss and damage fund is that we have uh, decided that this flood or this drought or this extreme bout of weather is due to climate change and that it would not have happened otherwise and that there needs to be money put towards it because it was definitely because of climate change. And not that because we've been a planet for 5 billion years and bad things happen periodically uh, time after time. Um, what do, what are your thoughts on that? I have the issue with this happened because of climate change. Yep. So people shared that concern of yours for 30 years since this fund was being kicked around. And I think a big part of the reason why it's finally started to happen is science has actually evolved to be able to answer some of those questions. There's a new field of science called attribution science that's really come out in the last maybe three, five years or so, where scientists can, within days, look at a particular storm and analyze exactly what percent climate change contributed to that storm. If you look at Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria, they were able to say, Climate change meant that X percent more rain happened in this storm than it would have in a pre-industrial climate. So now that scientists can do that, which is just so exciting, not just for this, but on weather broadcasts, weathermen can kind of explain this to the audience. I think this is huge for trying to communicate climate change to people when these storms happen, because I agree with you when a hurricane happens and all the climate people come flooding my Twitter page, like this is climate change. I'm <laughs> like, okay, let's, let's calm down. And honestly, a bit of that is because like this summer, we had the longest streak since 1999 without a named hurricane from I think beginning of July to end of August. And I was sitting there saying, okay, you guys are a little quiet right now. Like, <laughs> I did a whole episode on hurricanes in that time, just because I was like, look, if we're going to talk about climate change creating hurricanes, we should also talk about why hurricanes weren't happening in this 60-day period. Uh, obviously, then Hurricane Fiona, Hurricane Ian, some really rough ones hit, and this year will certainly be a historic hurricane year, but that was that was really interesting. So, I think this field of attribution science is largely what 
makes a loss and damage fund a little more feasible, and I would hope addresses that concern that you bring up. I'm going to look that up uh, because I had not heard of it before. I think one of our biggest issues is uh, I'm just going to say people on the I'm going to generalize and say people on the left um, because uh, or climate, I don't know, climate activist side of uh, of people on the left would uh, say any every single thing that happens was because of climate change. And the thing that drives me the most crazy is when they'll say hottest on record or most on record or something like that. And what I will often say is, okay, well, we got like 150 years of decent data. Like what about the other four and a half billion uh, that we didn't have before that? So when I hear someone say on record, it means literally nothing to me at all. They're just wasted words in in a headline because I don't have any data for a whole lot of other years. But I think where we've gone wrong is everyone is so alarmist. Everyone is so quick to attribute every single thing to being climate change that now it's like crime wolf and people like me just don't pay attention to it anymore. And I hope people can try to learn from that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that we often will focus in on a specific individual event and point to climate change when what I try to do is take a little bit of a bigger picture view and say it's not this particular record that is freaking me out. It's the totality of the situation where we're seeing records happen all the time. And I think in some sense it's fair to do this kind of 150-year comparison just because that is when we started emitting fossil fuels. And if we go back billions of years, I mean, there were ice ages. There were (laughs) a whole bunch of factors that are well outside of our control. But today, the climate is changing way faster than it ever has. And scientists can measure that that's because of human greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah, I think that ultimately, it would be great to have this billion year record that we could go off. But at the same time, I think there is some relevance to talking within the last century and a half or so. And uh, but again, I, I agree that focusing in on specific events even though, like I said, with attribution science, we can start to measure these climate links, it still, to me, is more relevant to just look at the totality of what's happening around the world, understand that climate change is having an impact, and then start to look at these solutions, which I think are really exciting that can bring that impact down in the future. Now, outside of all of that, you see, we just had a slight disagreement on something. And so if we could back up from the climate change conversation, look at us having a disagreement and talking about it. I doubt, I hope, you don't think that I think the way I do because I hate poor people or something like that. And I don't think that you think the way you do because you want to control my life. Uh, maybe we just have a disagreement on something. How do we get more people to do stuff like this? Absolutely. I think this is honestly a large part of why I do what I do. Cause I think there is way too much divisiveness in what to me should be a very easy conversation to find common ground on. What I always recommend to people is just talk to someone you disagree with and start those conversations. It doesn't have to be about politics or climate. It can be about books or movies or sports. I've been reflecting back pretty recently. The town I grew up in was Bethel, Connecticut. It's about a 50-50 split liberal conservative. We grew up with many friends who had opposite political views of ourselves and I don't even think I knew that until maybe I was <laughs> in high school. Like It just didn't come up. And 
in high school, I went to a boarding school in Massachusetts where I got to meet a lot of people from different political perspectives. And I specifically sought out making friends on both the left and the right and listening to them. I certainly had not made up my mind on much as a 14-year-old, so it was great to learn from all these different people and shape my viewpoints. And today, I try to communicate in a way that anyone can listen and find some common ground on. So really just that first step of engaging with someone you disagree with. I'm not saying you have to be friends with someone if you think that they're unethical or have some major moral uh, disagreement with you, but if you just talk to them and learn where they're coming from, I think that's a big first step. Absolutely. I, I had dinner last weekend with people who, uh, I'll just I'll just say, I'll just be truthful. If they were people I didn't know and they were on Twitter, we'd probably say really mean things to one another. But actually, we're really good friends and we had a great time hanging out over the weekend. And I think more people need to do that and realize that those people online, they're also just people that you could pr- probably be friends with if you knew them in, in real life. Uh, so that's important. Now, I was going to ask you real quick about your podcast. You talk a lot about uh, making it fun, you know, making climate change funny. Uh, tell me about why that's important as opposed to just, you know, your normal conversation about climate change. Yeah. So my podcast, The Sweaty Penguin, it's a comedy climate podcast presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. And my goal with it was to try to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. And I actually have a background in comedy writing. I ran both my high school and my college satire publications uh, with my degree in film and television. Like Half the classes I took were comedy screenwriting classes. So that's always been a passion of mine. And getting into climate, I felt that I could use that to try to make this a little more bearable because when we see so many of the news stories, it's just so overwhelming and depressing right away. And it makes you want to disengage. I struggled for years to even become interested in climate change before I took some classes in college and started to see some of the nuance and critical thinking that made it a little more fun. So I thought comedy might be that spark that could get someone in the door that might not otherwise get in the door. And then from there, I could present my more hopeful, optimistic outlook and see if I can get people on board. But yeah, certainly bringing comedy has, I think, made my podcast more unique. And I hope that people will check it out. Yeah, for sure. We're going to have links to that in the uh, show notes and to the uh, at least the two articles of yours that I read um, from C3 and Counterpunch. Pretty sure those were the two that I was reading. And where where else, where can people go follow you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at EthanBrown5151. The Sweaty Penguin, you can find wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, etc., or thesweatypenguin.com. Uh, what I also always ask people is to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. There you can get merch, bonus content, and more. Um, and then, yeah, Sweaty Penguin is everywhere on social media as well, so go check that out. All right. Ethan, thank you so much. I I hope to have you on again sometime. And uh, I just think it's, we talk to a lot of people that we, uh, I just agree on everything with all the time. And I think it's important for people to hear two people who, who maybe aren't on the same page uh, with everything that we can just have a nice conversation and maybe find common ground on things. So I really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun and I hope to be back soon. All right. Thank you.